Welcome everybody to Way of the Blade, the podcast. I'm your host, Phil Schneider from Segunda Caida blog and author of Way of the Blade, 100 of the greatest bloody matches in wrestling history. I am here today with the legendary Southern wrestling announcer and manager, the Reverend Dan Wilson. And we are here today to talk about one of my all-time favorite sort of hidden gems. Uh, the War Games match between Team Anarchy and the Devil's Rejects from July 22nd, 2006. And we are here with the Svengali of those Devil's Rejects there, Dark Reverend, to talk about the lead-up to the match, the match itself, and sort of the history of uh, Anarchy Wrestling and wrestling in Cornelia, Georgia. I really appreciate you doing it. (laughs) That's nice. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Hail Satan. (laughs) And I am very excited to talk about war games. And I love that name, Way of the Blade. (laughs) That is so enticing. Awesome. All right, well, let's talk a little about sort of your journey to leading the Devil's Rejects. Because you started out as an announcer in Wildside, right? I did, and was the voice of Wildside in many ways. Now, I, I did have a broadcast partner in Stephen Prezak, and you know, overall, he was a much more well-known and respected announcer in the the overall wrestling world. But you know, he was kind enough to kind of take a back seat and let me lead the the broadcast team. And I learned so much under him at that time and working with him. But pretty much for the duration of Wildside, outside of those first couple of years years we were the broadcast team throughout and scott hudson was our backup so you know it's it's you're not in bad company when a legendary wcw and more announcer like scott is your your second string but he was the guy that you know he lived close by and just loved the product and would always come by and help out when one of us were unable to make the show but usually it was me and steven and so as kind of the host of wild side i was the de facto babyface advocate um you know in terms of telling those stories on commentary of course uh, while you try to remain impartial as you're telling the stories you always do want to lean towards the baby faces and celebrate those victories because you are that liaison with the audience so as the announcer you want to describe what they're seeing but also take them on the emotional highs and lows of the journey and the story that you're trying to tell so i say all of that to say when Wildside wrapped up in 2005 i wanted to take a little bit of a break from wrestling i'm, I'm a creative dude i like to do lots of different creative projects i've been in bands i've done writing i'm currently uh, working on a horror production project where I do a podcast and we make short films. Like my attention span is all over the place for creative projects. So at the time, I went and joined a thrash metal band called All But Destroyed, and gave that a serious go. And we had a good time. We had a little bit of regional success. We put out an EP, and I took a little break from wrestling. And during that time, NWA Anarchy which was the promotion that popped up in the place of Wildside was just starting to get going and get its footing. And they really needed some sort of big angle to pop things off. And it was Al Getz and Tank, if I'm not mistaken, who uh, Al Getz, legendary manager from the Wildside days, Tank, one of the all-time great 
deathmatch wrestlers and brawlers and, of course, an icon on the southern independent scene. Uh, they were discussing different ideas to kind of shake things up. And Tank actually mentioned, what if we brought back Dan and turned him heel? And I didn't even give it a second thought, but he called me and kind of put the bug in my ear. And I started thinking about it and ideas started coming on what I could do with this character and kind of be given free reign to just go nuts as this villain. And the Reverend was kind of born out of that. And it was something that evolved over time. But at first it was just, let's turn the babyface announcer heel because it already been replaced. Greg Hunter filled in for me as the announcer and he did a fine job. He was in many ways, a better play by play guy than me. I thought, but, um, so I wasn't needed in that role anymore. So it was the perfect timing to turn me heel and start this faction. Tell me how it, like, what was the angle to do it? Describe the angle. Because, you know, the thing about NWA Anarchy, I love every bit of it I've seen. But it is not something that is super available. Like, it's this thing that, a promotion that had a bunch of incredible matches, great angles, and it's sort of footprint still on the internet. It's hard to find. I This match is on YouTube, so people can go and see it. The 2007 match, which, a uh, War Games match, which we're going to do a podcast about at some point, uh, is also in my book. That I had to, like, I had, it was like Indiana Jones uh, uh, searching for that footage. I was emailing people. I spent, spent months trying to find it. So, like, I don't, uh, and I wasn't watching Anarchy, as uh, more than occasionally while it was going on, even though I think you guys did have, you know, more of a footprint when it was happening. So describe the angle to me where they didn't just bring you in, right? I'm assuming they did something. They did. Um, there was a contingent of former wild side wrestlers, Tank and Azrael at the time, who were bitter about anarchy and so they kind of made it known that they weren't really there with anarchy that they didn't want wrestling to continue they were told that wrestling was ending so they came out here and they shed tears in front of people and they poured their souls out in that final wild side match only for it to kind of be cheapened when they reopened the promotion under a different name and in this hollowed wrestling hall um over the few weeks there was this voice that came over the PA, which I had nothing to do with this. This is where the the angle kind of started in one place and evolved to another because Al Getz actually recorded all of the initial voiceovers that played over the PA. And as far as the footage, I'm with you. I don't know why it is so hard for anarchy footage to be located. Hopefully, with Bill Barron's agreement with Internet Wrestling TV, they will eventually get to the anarchy stuff and it will get back in the limelight but regardless there's this voice saying uh, all of this prophetic and, and dark flowery stuff about a storm coming and how it's going to shake the foundation of anarchy and they've betrayed their fathers and all of this stuff and uh, it, it honestly was kind of dying a fucking horrible death <laughs> at first if it wasn't for Azrael and Tank being involved in the initial setup of it it would not have gone anywhere, but they were so respected as wrestlers in that building that the people took them seriously. But the hokey voice over the VA, they were not really taking seriously. Eventually, Iceberg joins 
their crusade of disgruntled former wild side stars and they say at fright night they are going to reveal the mastermind behind this chaos and at fright night we attack slim j who was one of the big champions of anarchy from the wild side era who who was all for the anarchy era and uh we obliterated slim j and i came out in this ceremonial robe uh trying to really look like uh one of the 70s hammer satanic films you know <laughs> like, like like those ritualistic robes and i didn't have the face paint on or anything like that but i had grown my hair and beard out for being in the band and so you know i had the look and they revealed it was me and the crowd cheers <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, fuck, well, we're supposed to be this next big heel thing, and this is really going downhill, so I know immediately I have got to turn them with my promo, so I just start lighting into it and blaming all of them for anarchy coming in and taking the place of Wildside, and it was their fault that Wildside went out of business if they'd shown up and supported us, then we wouldn't have gone out of business in the first place. And just all of these things I could do to get them to turn on me. And it was successful. And so then they started chanting, you suck. And uh, it was not that nuclear level of heat we would go on to achieve, but, but it was a step in the right direction. So we are now set up and we're established and we start recruiting members from the inside the first of those is sean tempers who was one half of the tag team pomp and circumstance with ace rockwell and they were a very successful tag team they had just turned babyface they were sort of the top babyface team in anarchy they were the tag team champions but they had just lost the titles uh, they had been doing this angle with them where they were kind of not on the same page and uh I came out and we surrounded them with the devil's rejects, all with sharp, stabby objects. It was really a scene out of a movie how we kind of held them hostage uh, and invited them to join the rejects. And of course, Tempers accepts, Rockwell declines, Tempers throws Rockwell to the wolves, and we're off and running there. That's where we really started getting the big heat. Um, and is this around was, 2005, the end of 2005? Like, what's the timeline of of when all of this launched? Because the match we're talking about is 2006. Correct. So the, the timeline we're talking about is I was revealed on Halloween-ish. It was the Halloween show, so it would have been week of Halloween, generally, of 2005. Okay. And then the building of the angle up to tempers turning on Rockwell happened at the Christmas show. So that would have been the end of the year. And then from there, there was almost a false start of the Team Anarchy angle because they had some baby faces that really weren't working yet with to, to face the rejects, but we, we needed somebody to beat kind of to get through this thing. So we had uh, Brandon Phoenix, formerly of the tag team Future Shock. Slim J was kind of always in the mix from the beginning. And then he brought back his former tag team partner, Murder One, who was, you know, a notorious gangster type character, always known as a tough guy who could get hardcore when necessary, was a great foil for the rejects. It was almost like, let's bring in somebody who can fight on their level of dirty. 
And the chemistry just wasn't there. And I, I don't know, really, I think it was more maybe the booking of it. But so we build up to this six man tag in March at the Hardcore Hell Show, hard, March of 2006. And it starts as this wild brawl, but for some reason, Bill Barons, who was the booker at the time, and I, I love Bill, I'm not talking, I know the first thing I say about his booking is me talking shit about it, but like, Bill is a genius, like, I've, I've learned more from Bill than I have almost anybody in the business, but on this particular night, he was wrong in his decision, and, um, the, so the, the match kind of laid a fucking egg. Um, we ended up beating this babyface team in the six man. Uh, we've still got our heat, but it's not really nuclear. And it was really pulling the Ace Rockwell and Sean Tempers issue to the forefront of the feud. And then also the addition of the babyface owner of Anarchy Wrestling kind of becoming part of the angle as the de facto voice and mouthpiece of the babyface team. His name was Jerry Palmer. He was a local firefighter and businessman. He had a great rapport in the local community. They loved him. They believed him. And he had a promo like a fiery Southern Baptist preacher. He could just really reach in and grab those people and they would go to war for him. And, I mean, he was even, like, in good shape, but he was just not cut out to be a wrestler. So he did not wrestle, but he was a great character to have. And the babyface team was Slim J, Ace Rockwell, and the Urban Assault Squad, which was uh, Shadow Jackson and Nemesis, uh, two black dudes who were really tough guy gimmick, you know, and, and they were very over his baby face. Shadow Jackson was one of the most charismatic dudes we ever had in that building. He didn't do a lot in the ring, but the people were with every single little thing he did. And so from the spring, from March up until the summer, when we did the War Games match, we injected these guys into the feud and they stepped up to meet the challenge of the rejects. And it was this great weekly TV where we were just escalating the issue back and forth with a variety of matches of those combinations. And then we did this angle. Uh, Ace Rockwell actually broke his arm in a match in Nashville against Tracy Smothers, uh, where he did a drop kick off the top and uh, missed and landed wrong and broke his wrist. And so, of course, our fans didn't really see that stuff. That was still when wrestling wasn't just like omnipresent across the Internet. So we did the ankle where we had tempers break Rockwell's arm with a claw hammer. That's a, and he comes into this match with the with a cast on his arm. So this was uh, his his pop and circumstance friend joining the dark side and breaking his arm with a claw hammer that you guys were really good at doing some grisly stuff. <laughs> like you could do that kind of break a guy's arm with a claw hammer and make it look like you broke a guy's arm with a claw hammer. Like a lot of the stuff that I think would come up, could come off hokey and has come off hokey in wrestling throughout the years. I thought really works a lot of times in that sort of Cornelia, the, the Cornelia special sauce would make stuff that otherwise would be corny look really just like, you know, grindhouse cinema kind of violence. 
<laughs> well, we really take pride in that. Uh, we're, we're big fans of violence, um, particularly me and Jeff G. Bailey and some of the other like mainstays that were down there for many years. And, and, you know, we do think, you know, when used right, blood is just an essential element of wrestling. It's one of the things that really draws us to it. And um, as far as those angles, like I grew up on a steady diet of... NWA wrestling in the South, of course, old WWF, but also Memphis wrestling. Gypsy Joe it was my great uncle, so I, I definitely had this connection to Memphis wrestling. And so when I you know, became more of like a creative guy in the business, I really went back and started studying that stuff. And that's where I would get so many of my ideas as far as getting heat. Um, we also had a booker at the time, Todd Sexton, who uh, was trained by Shawn Michaels and actually was a great mind as well. So between he putting stuff together and me coming up with a lot of the stuff for the rejects, like we really came across some, some really awesome stuff. And over the years, like you said, in Cornelia, we, we've managed to get a Away with a lot of that crazy shit like uh, even in wild side like when we set the tombstone on fire for the sinister minister promo and other just wacky shit there you know we just didn't we would rather get uh, forgiveness than permission <laughs> in a lot of cases i remember when i first would what we caught when i was in college you'd catch wild side like on uh like a cable access thing that I got and you watch this like what is this <laughs> you know you'd listen to you'd listen to shank promos about uh about uh taking the taking the wrestlers he's wrestling in in the back and and, and sodomizing ever you'd uh listen to Romeo Bliss talk about how he get a uh, how he woke up one morning on the floor with a rat's high heel up his ass and you're like wow I don't you know ECW was going on around you know the same time too which is the same kind of thing but uh something about that that Cornelia stuff, even though it was similarly edgy, ECW always felt to me a little bit like Opie and Anthony radio shock jock edgy, and uh, and you know Watson felt more like horror film from like 1981 where the 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 picture doesn't look great and you feel weird watching it. It's a different kind of edgy. My God, that's the best compliment you could ever pay me or any of us, I think. I, I don't know. At least me and Jeff would take that compliment. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, that's that's awesome. All right, so we let's get we, we we've broken Ace Rockwell's arm with a claw hammer because you're you're a psychopath. You've broken his arm, and that was, so where do we go from here? So from here, this is where we're really setting up the war games. And, you know, there's a lot of question of, is he going to even be able to compete in the war games? But of course he comes back and fights with the cast on and just is determined to, to continue into this match. And let's, let's give a little background on the war games and why that's even important here. Of course, in the NWA, the war games was always sort of a, a be all end all way to settle a score all the way back to the Four Horsemen and Dusty Rhodes teams and et cetera. Um, so in NWA Wildside, it was something that we really wanted to do. And for the first time in 2001, we decided to go ahead with it uh, to much protest because we didn't have two rings. Um, you know, there was certainly a, a restriction there. Of course, people were concerned that someone else might own the copyright of the war games. And we were just like, fuck it, let's do it. And if somebody gets mad, they'll get mad. 
Ask for uh, forgiveness, not permission, right? <laughs> exactly. And, and so we did it, and um, it, it was a big hit. And in that first War Games, even the finish was kind of wonky. Um, if, if you go back to check out the Wild Side podcast that me and Jeff are doing with uh, Chris Zellner, and you'll get some inside stories on that. Uh, but yeah, so so we, we did the first War Games. It was a hit, and it became the annual way to settle a score in Wildside. So every year at the Summer Big Show, which in Wildside was called Freedom Fight, we would do a War Games match of some kind. And, of course, when Anarchy came back, that was one of the things that we decided to keep, even though the show changed its name, the Summer Show in Anarchy, was called Hostile Environment. And it was, again, the ultimate way to settle a score. We had even had Dusty Rhodes in for two of the War Games matches and had given his endorsement and done a coin flip. And for a War Games match in one fucking ring, that's not too shabby. No, no, for sure. I, I think it was that. I, the one uh, Wild Side show I went to, uh, I think Dusty Rhodes was there, but I don't think it was a War Games. He was involved in... Uh, like it was a six man. God, it was a long time ago. I wish I could remember what it was. But he was like in a six. He was like involved in, in outside in a six man tag or something like that. Uh, yep, it was AJ and uh, Alter Boy Luke and Gabriel against uh, Christopher Daniels, Azrael, and Rain Man. Yep, that sounds right. Uh, I was actually I uh, went down with my buddy Tom K, who writes for Segunda Caída to see a lucha show in Atlanta. It was like headlined by El Hida Santo in LA Park. And we were like, well, we got to make it a weekend. So we actually hooked up with your buddy Chris Zellner and went to a, a wild side show as well. My only time I've had, ever had a chance to do that, but I really, you know, had a, a blast at the, in that arena. Really, it's, you can take it off barn in the middle of nowhere i mean really you turn down a dirt road and then you, when you get there it's got all this you can you can sort of smell the history it like really is like one of those places almost like you know when going to arena mexico or one of these places that really has that uh bayonne hall in new jersey these places that have are like almost these wrestling uh meccas that on the outside of ECW arenas like that too they you know when you're there it really feels like you're in you know madison square garden even when you look at it outside it's like this kind of it looks a little dumpy <laughs> yeah absolutely no i love that about it there's so few of those venues left they keep sort of kind of disappearing over time and it's really sad but it, it really is like from the outside you can hear the deliverance banjos in the distance <laughs> and you think that bad things are about to happen but you go inside and you're sort of transported through this time machine back to the old studio vibe that's that's sort of what we tried to replicate yeah. especially for the anarchy era to the point that we even had the flags on the back wall right. like the old mid-atlantic studio right. well you think some bad things are going to happen then you go inside and bad things happen not to you, but there are bad things going on. You're you're correct. It's kind of how you feel like, you, like, boy, this is a creepy, weird atmosphere. I feel like it's. I feel like something horrible is going to happen. You go in, and horrible things are happening. I mean, certainly you can't describe this match as anything but a horrible thing happening in the in the most positive way you could use the word horrible. Obviously, it's an incredible match, but 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 uh, visceral for sure. <laughs> yeah. It horrible indeed but like you said in in the best possible way um 
And th- there was one other stipulation I did want to cover before we actually got into the match because they, we had kind of built things to a head. And there was one thing that we did for Anarchy that we wanted to try to put kind of a unique spin that was different from how we did it in Wildside. So instead of doing the traditional coin toss, we started doing a coin toss match on the television taping before the war games. So we would pick one person from each team to have a singles match, and then the winner of that would earn the advantage. Not really anything super crazy or inventive, but something that we thought was just kind of cool to put an original twist on it. Cool. And so who was in the coin flip match for this match? Nemesis and Tank. Okay. And of course, well, of course, I mean, you can't have a a War Games match where the Babyface team wins the coin flip, right? That is that's that's uh that is a uh, profane. That's a fact. <laughs> and you know, one time I actually asked Dusty that because he was hanging out in the back at Wildside. We were just shooting the shit, and I was like, "So the war games? Like, was there any scenario you ever imagined where the babyfaces would win the coin toss?" And he was like, "Babyfaces always lose the coin toss. The heels always win the coin toss in the war games, baby. There's no exceptions. No exceptions." Right. And was that true? And you've you've been part of a lot of war games matches, right? So have you in all the war games matches you've been, it's always been the heels of the advantage, right? Not always. We Not did always. Switch it up occasionally. After okay. you've done like ten of them in a row, where it was the same thing, we're like, okay, how can we create a scenario where the baby faces do win the coin toss, but you still put them at a disadvantage because you still have to tell that story, right? Right. But you, you have to at least keep people guessing occasionally. So you know, we would do something like they would win the coin toss, but somebody would sneak attack the first guy and injure him, sure. so they were still at a disadvantage. But this time, traditionally, our heels win the coin toss. And we start out, uh, who are our first two guys in this match? Our first two guys in this one are Ace Rockwell and Azrael. And there was a stipulation also added to this last minute because we just had so much heat at this point. Um, You know, we were doing this satanic gimmick in the South. And uh, even in 2006, there's like you could throw a fucking rock and hit a satanic gimmick on the end. Yes. Now, in 2006, you could not. It, you know, it was a rare thing. Like there was Kevin Sullivan and there was Jimmy Mitchell and there was kind of us. Like there, there weren't a lot. Um, so we had this insane heat and we tried to capitalize by setting the stipulation that if we won the war games, I would win control of anarchy. Right. So that, that was sort of the setup to like add a little extra sauce on it because we knew that this was burning so hot that we didn't want to overstay our welcome either. So we were kind of teasing with that and we, we went back and forth on the finish for a while, but but regardless, going in, so it's Ace Rockwell and Azrael starting the match. Um, Azrael was one half of the Lost Boys in Wildside. A lot of indie fans might remember him from those days. Um, really just a savant. The dude is like a ninja in many ways, and he's so unique and creative and also equally vicious. And uh, Rockwell was a great babyface in this era. He really knew how to sell. He really knew how to get that sympathy. And he knew when to fire up at the right time. So both of these guys had endurance to be able to last 
uh, and, and you know start the match out, and they had good chemistry, I thought. And yeah, I think uh, and Rockwell, I, he was incredible in this match. I mean, I, I really loved everybody in this match. I thought everybody in this match did great, but he's a guy I wasn't tremendously familiar with coming in here. I know I'd seen him. I the pomp and circumstances rung a bell, but I, I thought this was one of the great babyface war games performances I can ever remember seeing with the broken arm. And then Slim J is a bad eye in this, right? Somebody at some, some point you stuck something in his eye as well. Oh yeah, we did. <laughs> we did stab Slim J in the eye and try to put his eye out. I wondered why he used to hit me so fucking hard when, when it was time for him to bump me. We put that poor guy through hell. I, I will say Slim J, uh, one of the hardest punches, pound for pound, in the business. I have been punched in the face by some legends and some tough guys. Nobody has ever hit me harder than Slim J, ever. Yeah, he's great. I, he's what? Well, he's actually. Uh, he's in. The, I have the um, a match from uh, a, the late a later version of Anarchy. The um, the does it cell block match. Between him and uh, is in my book as well. So I've got, I'm a Slim J fan. I think he's one of those guys who really uh, never didn't get as much, um, never had it, him and Corey Hollis in the, in a, uh, in a, where they are, yard call, yard call. What am I thinking? Oh, I was the booker for that. I love that match. That's in the book too. Yard calls in the book too. So I don't know. If you, I don't know I'm going to have to, you're just going to, you're going to be my co-host by the time this podcast is over because I'm such a fan of this stuff. But yeah, yard call. Yeah. is in the book too. So he's still, you know, still rolling, you know, even though he's been in the in wrestling for God, it has to be 20 plus years at this point, more maybe. Uh, still rolling and still very, very good. And he's great in this, too. I mean, just as a guy who I think probably had his most acclaim as, like, you know, he was in the early ROH. He was in uh, Special K. He was kind of a high flyer. And he's a good high flyer, but he is a great brawler. Uh, I mean, just an incredibly good brawler, babyface brawler. Like like you said, I, I believe you that he hits hard because it looks like he hits hard. Yeah, he's, he's not pulling any punches. But, no, he really is. He's only gotten better over time. And like you said, you know, in the early days of ROH, he was mostly known as, like, a flippy-dippy-doo guy. Like, that's all he did. And it was the stuff was super impressive, but, like, he's learned so much. He's such a more well-rounded wrestler over time now. And he's one of those guys that, like, I, and I think it's maybe just because he's gotten, like, more concussions legitimately than any human being I've ever met in my life. And maybe they just don't want to take a chance on him. I don't know what it is, but he's a guy that it's a crime it's absolutely criminal that he did not get a contract and still hasn't i mean of course he's still at it so it could happen but damn yeah he's gotten uh you know i think some some of like those iwtv promotions have brought him in so he's gotten a little bit more shine at least in that way lately but yes he's the guy that you would you know if you were if somebody if i won the lottery and i was running wrestling well i would hopefully do you know do something else with my money, but you know, like he'd be a gift. I was running around. If I won the lottery with a stipulation, I had to spend it on a wrestling promotion. I would, he's a guy I would definitely think about, definitely bring in because he can do so many different things. Uh, so well, so he's great in this match too. Takes an absolute shellacking, um, uh, from, from, uh, from the heels. I mean, he's got that eye already messed up. And then I think tempers, uh, stabs him with a meat cleaver in his eye. 
I think oh, at one point yeah, this match. This is the one where the meat cleaver makes its way into <laughs> the match. Where you just watching it's like, oh my god. And, you know, it that's tricky. It's hard to do a wrestling match with murder stuff. Because, you know, it's part of it is like, well, if he's got a meat cleaver. You know, why it's hard to do it and, and where it doesn't, you just don't think, well, why didn't he just, why isn't the wrestler he hit him with the meat cleaver dead? Like, like a lot of times you'll see that those things where you'll have like, you'll, the weapons will go past the point of wrestling weapons to weapons of, you know, torture and murder where, it do, you know, it's hard to buy it, right? Where it's like, oh. Yeah. So, like realism was always paramount to us you know we, we really because the people there believed and we didn't want to do anything to break that this was 2006 and these people wanted to fucking kill me phil they had to sneak me in and out of the building a lot of the times they would chase after our cars That's excellent. Um, it was it was nuts you know like they really wanted so realism was very important to us and uh, so even when these crazy weapons got involved, you know, like I'd say like Azrael was a big fan of the original Sheik and other people as far as the way they used weapons. And he kind of tried to take a page out of that book when when he used the the more obscure or kind of not really wrestling weapons, <laughs> but more horror movie stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, he I thought I thought those were like the two. Those two, I mean, I, I enjoyed Urban Assault Squad in this match, too. I thought they were a lot of fun. Um, but, like, I think this was a Slim J and Ace Rockwell, like, showcase in a lot of ways. I thought um, I thought Jackson, especially in this match, he kind of, he's like the heater, which I think every great War Games match, you're, a, you're an expert in War Games matches more than I am, certainly. But I think every great War Games matches needs, like, a heater, a guy who's going to come in and you know, throw it, knock around every heel in the match. It's a sting would always do it in, uh, in those, uh, in those nineties war games. And you, Nikita would do it. And Dusty would do it in a lot of ways in the eighties ones where he's going to come in and clean the clean house guy. And he's a great clean house guy in this match. Like the crowd goes nuts. gets everybody with power slams, you know, really excellent in this, in that role. But boy, it was, uh, Rockwell and Slim J, like, career performances from those guys. Yeah, it really was. Like, Slim J immediately coming in and cleaning house as the second guy and diving off the cage and sort of evening the odds there with him and Tempers and Rockwell and, and Azrael when it's just down to the four of them. And, of course, the blood's flowing on everybody, sure. and I loved that. Uh, you know, we always had that strict rule about cage matches. Like, you don't put up the cage if you're not going to bleed. <laughs> and at War Games, pretty much everybody's expected to bleed. Yeah. Now, over time... When blading became less acceptable in wrestling, we started laxing on that rule. But, you know, originally in the old days, it was a rite of passage. You know, mm -hmm. if you were going to be in the war games, you better get ready to get that fucking color, son. Yeah. And you better not get no shitty color. You better get it down to your boots because that's what the people are expecting. <laughs> you bleed in this one? I know you're a guy who's, who, who uh, resembles that remark. In these matches I, often. <laughs> I, I think I might have bled in this one. Because Jerry gets a hold of me 
Um, but it, it actually, it might not have been. I, I, I'll have to, to check it and see here in a minute. I'm kind of watching along to refresh my memory as we discuss. Um, I, I want to say I got a little bit of color, but it wasn't great. So I did break my own rule. But technically, I wasn't in the match. Okay. So. <laughs> uh, you damn near bleed to death in 2007. We're going to talk about 2007 on a different podcast. That match, it really is like what it looks like an accident. Like, oh, no. Yeah, I <laughs> sacrificed a few gallons of blood and my right knee for that match. Yes. So. Um, so, so we end up with Tank and Iceberg. So let's talk a little about Tank and Iceberg. These are guys who you manage for a long, long time, right? Oh, yes. Two of my best friends. Yeah, tell me about them. Yeah, Tank in particular. Tank's the guy I've known uh, since I pretty much got in the business. Like, we met in Dalton, Georgia. We're both into a lot of the same music and horror movies, so we kind of became fast friends. We found out that we live pretty close to each other and started hanging out. So, like, uh, we've been pretty much attached at the hip since about the year 2000 um he's so you know he was one of my oldest friends in the business and when i started managing him and iceberg here at the rejects berg was another guy whose career i'd had a pretty big hand in he had come over um he was a guy that abdullah the butcher had recommended us originally and abdullah had kind of mentored iceberg and murder one had trained him so he had good people speaking up for him and he had just come back from Japan and done a tour there where he wrestled uh, Mr. Pogo and actually got a win. Like, Mr. Pogo laid down for him, which uh-huh. was crazy. So Berg became this huge attraction in Wildside all on his own. We kind of remade him as this uh, our own version of Abdullah or the Sheik or, you know, this just giant killer monster character. And, of course, Jeff brought him to life with these incredible promos and everything. And Tank was originally introduced as a foil to him because Tank is of similar size. And Tank is very tough legitimately and also is just a hell of a wrestler. And so he and Berg both are impressive big guys who can do a lot more than you would expect for their size. And they're both believable and physically imposing. So they had a huge run as one of the popular babyface tag teams in Wildside. Of course, turning them heel and bringing them into the rejects was a big part of our early success. And in this type of match, they're the guys to go to in a lot of ways because they've got that death match and hardcore experience. Uh, and both guys, you know, are more known for that than they are their wrestling ability. They are both great workers, like absolutely great workers, way better than you probably even would know or give them credit for. But when it comes to blood and violence and hardcore shit, they can fucking go and uh, they certainly do it in this match as well uh, they're kind of the gatekeepers and they're kind of the most respected guys they were they kind of held that undertaker position in wild side where it's like you know if you wanted to pass the test you kind of had to go through them right um is it apocryphal you mentioned that Abdullah recommended him. I, the story I'd always heard, you can maybe and, and maybe even if it's not true, tell me that it is. Was that he was just a guy who was gigantic and ate at Abdullah's restaurant, and Abdullah said, "You should be a wrestler. You're enormous. You just ate three racks of ribs in one sitting. Come, let me train you." Is that true? That that's the story that he was just like a guy who ate at Abby's Chinese food and ribs. 
I think there is some truth to that, at least. I, I think Abdullah probably did send him to murder one who actually trained him, and Abdullah just kind of guided him and mentored him in his early days. And yeah, no, he definitely ate at Abdullah's restaurant and because there's a there was a picture of Berg up there even before Berg was anybody really. You know, when he was just starting out, there was a picture of him in Abby's restaurant. That's funny. That's a good. I ate there once. It's very, before it closed uh, on that same trip to Atlanta. It's pretty. It's good. Pretty good food. Was oh yeah. <laughs> for uh, we used to go there a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, for 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 like a strip mall Chinese and ribs, you, you could do a lot worse than Abby's. And obviously, it's you know it's Abdullah the Butcher, one of the all timers in wrestling history. So you got to go if you got to make a, the the you had to make the trek even if you food wasn't good. You were going to go and uh, and and eat there for sure. Um, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, let's see the other two. So we had, so we talked about, I think everybody in this match, we have the, these two enormous bumps, which are kind of the big moments up to the finish where yes. tank takes a Russian leg, leg sweep off the top through a table and iceberg takes a superplex, which is, he, you talked about what he was. That iceberg would take some incredibly athletic bumps from a guy who, I know he was billed at 500 pounds, 600 pounds. Well, it's not 600 pounds, but was, you know, three, 380, 390, 400 for sure, right? Wrestling 600 and, you know, but, but, but on a scale, you know, over four. And he would just take absolute, I mean, a superplex from a guy, on a guy that size. Just nuts. Yeah, no, he was legit 450 at a time. I don't think he was that here. He had already started slimming down a bit by the rejects era, but there was definitely a time in Wildside he was legitimately 450 pounds. And, you know, we had to really talk him down from taking so many bumps because uh, he just, you know, he, he got a little pissy that the smart wrestling fans would shit on him and his style a lot of the time. And uh, because he could do so much more, so he wanted to go prove it. And we would always have to be like, Bird, you'd save it. Save it for that big moment when Shadow Jackson comes in and power slams you. Save it for that big superplex. You know, you don't have to show, we know you're great. We know you can do this stuff. Save it where it means something. Fuck those people. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the big issues I have with current wrestling is so many of these big guys want to go look at my Hurricane Rana. It's like, no, just hit a guy in the face of the forum. I don't need to look at your goddamn Hurricane Rana. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't need, I don't need to see how good you are at doing Malenko Guerrero roll-ups and a kick-up, kip-ups. You know what I mean? Like, at some point, there are diminishing returns with that kind of thing, right? It makes the guys yeah. who are smaller look, you know, it's like, well, if, if you know, if, uh, if Do- Donovan Dijak can do the same shit that, uh, that 145, 175-pound guy on 205 Live could do, then is that really that impressive when that guy does it? And it's not like he, it even, like, it'd be a lot more impressive if Donovan Dijak just kicked the guy in the face. Just kick him in the face, right? Like, or say, like you said, save the iceberg, one big iceberg bump. If he, if he, you know, bumped like Mr. Perfect at every punch, he loses all of what makes him great. Yes. No, I, absolutely, and I, I agree with everything you said a thousand percent, and I, I don't know why things have kind of changed, but I mean, I, I get it in some ways just because of the way the business has changed, but it's certainly not my preference. I, I like to see things mean something. I like to see a, you know, a story being told and uh, 
just basically like reenact a movie, you know, tell that story. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see a stunt show necessarily. There's a time and place for it, but fuck. Yeah, the time and place may not be when both guys are 300 pounds. No, <laughs> yeah. no definitely not. Let those guys do different. That, 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 that's, they do a thing. There's a thing, there's a role there, and it's a great role. Uh, and it's it's here. I mean, I, I think one of the things I liked, uh, you know, love so much about this match is how legitimately terrifying the Devil's Rejects are. I mean, they are scary-looking guys in a way that, uh, you know, it's some. It's one thing if you're locked in a in a war game steel cage with Arn Anderson's great wrestler, tough guy, but you're locked in this steel cage with the Devil's Rejects. They look like they're, what their plan is is to hang you from hooks and skin you alive and make you beef jerky, right? It's a different kind of, it's a different kind of tear, right? Like, oh, you know, Ric Flair's going to beat me up. Uh, uh, Asriel's going to put a stint in my neck and drain my blood. <laughs> Man. Like, again, you just keep coming with some of the best compliments I've ever gotten. Um, it, that was very important to us as well. Again, just th- that air of realism. And again, that stuff can really come off hokey, the dark, satanic. Oh, it almost always does. Like, you know, it's it really does. <laughs> like 95% of it in wrestling is like, okay, right, you're the you're the son of Satan or whatever. Like, you know, like, or you're, you know, a lot of, a lot of guys, a lot of guys with metal t-shirts who watch Raven and, you know, and it's like, okay, it's, you know, d- diminishing returns after diminishing returns after diminishing returns with these gimmicks for the most part, not here or really anytime you see the reject, every time you see any version of them, you go, yeah, okay, I, I get it. These guys are, these guys are like, uh, you know, these guys are legitimately terrifying, scary monsters who are going to try to kill you. And, uh, and, and might, and, and, you know, that's the thing. It's like, he's got a meat cleaver and he's driving into this guy's eye, right? It's not, he's not really trying to do a drop kick. He's taking meat cleaver and driving into his eye. And it looks like that he's going to, this guy's not going to have an eye after this match. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, and I thought it was really, you know, I, I mean, you have to give a lot these guys a lot of credit. There were how many people at these shows? 400? 350? 500? Yeah, this, this was a sellout and, and one of our first, like, legitimate sellouts. Like, we could not cram another motherfucker in that building. And it was it was between 350 and 400 is what I was told, which is insane for that building. Because, you know, normally a big show, what we would consider packed, is like 250. Right. So, but 350, these guys are taking bumps like this is the Tokyo Dome or something. I mean, these guys are yeah. just absolutely flying into this cage at angles that you wouldn't, you're not supposed to hit a cage at. You know what I mean? Nothing, and, and you know, obviously, Iceberg taking that superplex and guys getting, you know, bleeding like, you know, uh, like they just, like there was just a car bomb in the ring or something like that. And it really is that example of, you know, they're going to give every single person in that arena who paid money to see at a show and every single person in that arena like you said this might i don't know how much of i don't know if it exists anywhere anymore like but i i don't know if that's this sort of atmosphere where the the fans in there are not there to have parasocial relationships with the wrestlers over twitter and buy their shirts and uh and um you know uh befriend befriend them after the show and go do trivia contests at a bar or something like that no these people are here to see you and the people who uh you manage uh defeated because you're evil and they hate you 
And I just don't, I don't think it exists anymore. I really don't. I mean, maybe some parts of Mexico, but I mean, I think for the maybe some Puerto Rico still has it. I don't know if it's anywhere in the United States. And but it's here, and you can sense it. And and let's talk a little about the finish uh, and the end of this match, which I think demonstrates that more than uh, anything. Yeah, the end of the match is, uh, of course, you mentioned all the big bumps that kind of set it up, and I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some of the, you know, Anarchy was not ever known for its great camera work or production values, but I gotta give it up for General Dwayne Burton, who was the hard, or the, uh, the ring cam man in the ring for most of these. There are a couple of shots. Uh, one of tempers with just the full face full of blood that would have been right at home on a cover of PWI magazine. And there's or not even PWI, like wrestling eye. One of the shittier ones. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, like those are the ones that really did it, right? PWI had some gloss to it. We're looking at the ones that were at the back of the, uh, of the rack of the wrestling magazines at the grocery store. <laughs> Yeah, like like grappling review with like some apartment wrestling ads in the back and shit like that. And then there's another shot of Shadow Jackson making a comeback out of the corner and his eyes get like wide as saucers, also covered in the face full of blood. That also would have been a great magazine cover, and I think those are two it's a shame that more people in wrestling don't know about this match for stuff like that in particular. I've I've been I've been like a I've been like a, a real uh, of evangelical uh, for this match. We have it. We, one of the things we do on Segunda Caída is we've got an all-time uh, match of the year like list that we update and bring in challengers. And this match is our 2006 match of the year. So we think it's the best. We you know we watch fair. Me and Eric watch as much wrestling as anybody. But I think this is the best match uh, in, the, in that entire year anywhere in the world. And I've been, I, and everybody that I tell, you know, when I watched it and then wrote it up, I was like, everybody I know who likes wrestling is like, oh, dude, you got to see this match. It's in six parts on YouTube. It had been there eight years before I watched it, but you got to check this shit out. It is insane. Oh, well, we, we certainly appreciate that <laughs> because I, I do feel like more people should have saw this match. In many ways, it's my crowning achievement as a heel manager. Like, I, I certainly probably went on to do better promos and you know we did the mountain center thing with the elite so i did bigger venues and and bigger crowds but as far as like just a pure artistic achievement and atmosphere this as a manager in particular is the crowning achievement of my career and and i think a lot of ours just because of the the way the people were so fucking invested in it so, of course, we wanted to pay this story off with the Tempers and Rockwell feud because that's sort of what ignited this whole thing into being something that people really cared about and got it really as hot as we thought it could achieve. And so to tie all the way back to that broken arm, the claw hammer gets introduced. The same claw hammer that broke Ace Rockwell's arm tempers has it look he's gonna try i think he's gonna try to break the other arm like you know he's he's gonna fuck rockwell up with it rockwell of course ends up getting the claw hammer away from him and sticking the claw in in tempers mouth oh so gross (laughs) (laughs) and reaching back and of course you know who wouldn't tap out after that so he surrenders we lose the war games and I actually misspoke about the stipulation I was getting the stipulation of this confused with another match that we did uh, later on down the line this, it was not that the rejects leave but it was that Jerry Palmer would get five minutes in the cage with me and so finally 
the owner of anarchy is going to get his hands on this weaselly evil bastard, this little fucking troll that has caused chaos for him for the last year. And um, he does, but we introduced one of our... He wasn't brand new, but he had been gone a while. uh, This giant character named Dominus. And he was actually the legitimate real-life brother of Michael Adrian, who was also giving the... Or Michael Judas, as he's known now. Um, He was also giving the wrestling thing a go. He wasn't quite as talented as his brother, but he was bigger. He had size, so... I crafted this character for him that was kind of based off of Tiny from the House of a Thousand Corpses, Devil's Rejects movies. Um, Somewhat based off of that character and other lumbering oafs in cinema history. Uh, But he comes out, of course, while Jerry is whipping my ass, rips the door off the cage and comes in and attacks Jerry from behind. We lock him in the cage the baby faces and the entire locker room clear out and to try to come save him. And we just obliterate him in the cage. And the crowd at this point, it looks like they're going to rush the ring. It was very tense. They were throwing shit. They were trying to climb the rails. Our security was trying to hold him back. Um, had it not been for the baby faces clearing the locker room and doing that intervention, I don't think that we would have came out of that without the people coming over the rail. But luckily, that took the steam off of them a little bit because they got to see, like, I'm, I see Slim J now climbing the cage, trying to get in uh, amongst other popular baby faces that weren't involved in the match. And uh, so, and then the Palmer gets stretchered out. And and then and then to, you have to tell this story. Goes okay. to the hospital, right? <laughs> because you know it's wrestling. He does. <laughs> we, we wanted to sell this thing, and Jerry, being a firefighter, of course, had all of these great hookups in town for police officers. If we needed cops to show up and arrest somebody, that was no problem. If we needed an ambulance to come by and be in a shot, that was no problem. So of course, we wanted to sell this to the hilt. So we had the ambulance show up and pick him up. Legit EMTs came in and stretchered him out. And the fucking audience followed the ambulance to the hospital. That's amazing. So this little tiny hospital in Habersham County, Georgia, like dozens upon dozens of psychotic, tiered, tiered up wrestling fans are coming in, bursting in the doors at like 1130 on a Saturday to check on the status of their local hero. And of course, uh, they had to actually sneak Jerry out of the back of the hospital and send somebody out to tell him, okay, you know, he's not accepting visitors for the night. We all have to leave. You guys <laughs> like, should... like, that's why it's a crowning achievement. Like, I don't know that anybody in 2006 in wrestling accomplished that. No. <laughs> I know. I mean, I, I mean, probably not even for 10 or 15 years before that, right? I mean, it really was one of those things that you might see where uh, people try to kill Michael Hayes in 1980 in New Orleans because the junkyard dog can't see his son being born, but not in 2006, right? It certainly, like, certainly not existed at this point. <laughs> yeah. no, certainly not. You would, you certainly never see anything like that now, right? I mean, and wrestling is worse for it, 
right? Because that's this is the kind of thing where even it can. I mean, this was an incredible match, but it would this kind of thing would even elevate a match that wasn't as good, right? If you could have that kind of buy-in from the fans and the buy-in from people who really feel like they're seeing the local firefighter get get uh, squashed like somebody dropped a refrigerator on them by iceberg and you know the and, and murdered by these hillbillies i mean you know that's kind of thing the kind of thing you just you know you don't get that kind of emotional investment anymore and you know it's not as wrestling's you're not as good anymore it's still good but not as good anymore <laughs> was this uh did you did you guys keep this like what we're gonna do a podcast on the 2007 war game so i don't want to go too much into the postscript of this match but i think we'll cover that a little bit when we uh when we do that you know at some later date this will get released first and we'll release this one at some later date um but what was the immediate aftermath of this match we blew it off in october we did this casket match this eight-man casket match which I, i think we should have blown it off in the war games but uh we we did a venue not in Cornelia. We went to Helen, Georgia, to this giant theater called the Remember When Theater because we sold so many for the war games and, you know, but it blew the building out with capacity. Jerry wanted to try running a different building for the next big show. And that was Fright Night, the Halloween big show. And so he wanted, we wanted to bring the rejects and Team Anarchy thing back one more time. And we did an eight man tag there with the stipulation of the losing team had to get, you had to dump somebody into the casket to win the match. And of course they, they wanted me and I was actually in that match. I, I wrestled in that match. And of course I got, that's where I got the color and got my ass dumped in the casket. So no, I did not bleed in this war games. I bled in the fright night match and Jerry dumped me in the casket and got his revenge. And I think that's a good to be continued because I think I think that leads into what Hap sets up the next workings match. Also in my book, we're also I'm dragging you back to do a podcast about that one too at some point. So maybe we'll end end this one there. You in the casket covered in blood uh, at Fright Night, and boy, I don't know where I don't think that's available anywhere. So we got to go. I got to talk to my buddies over at IWTV and tell them get the anarchy for goodness sake. Yeah, that Fright Night match was good. Abyss came in as a special guest for the Babyface team. And so, you know, he was uh, in there bumping us around. And uh, AJ Styles actually is involved in the brouhaha that leads me to go into the casket. So, um, you know, that's important to note going into that next podcast. All I'll right. just leave that. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I had a blast. This was, all, like I said, one of my, one of my all-time favorite matches. And a match that, again, I didn't have, you know, because Anarchy's not, a, you know, hard to get your hands on, I knew very little of the setup for. So I learned a ton here. Uh, and I hope the people who listen to it really enjoy this. Um, let's, you are, you mentioned you're, uh, do, uh, you, what are, you're no longer in professional wrestling for now, at some point, who knows, but right now you're retired. And what are you up to? Like what, where I know that you, you have, you have a horror podcast. Tell me about that. Tell other people how they can sort of follow along with your journey. Yes. So I did retire from pro wrestling in 2018. It was very good to me for nearly 20 years. I was in two different hall of fames and 
I got to live out a lot of my childhood dreams. Like I have no, no regrets with pro wrestling and the way it turned out. I got to do pretty much everything I set out to do with just a couple of exceptions. So pretty sure the book is closed on that, but you do never say never in the business. There's probably some opportunity that I haven't thought of that would get me back involved. But as of now, like I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, I'm a bit of uh, an ADD type of personality when it comes to my interests and my creativity. And so for the last few years, I, another one of my sort of bucket list items was always to make a horror movie. I uh, finally did that in 2018. We made our first short film. I started a small production company called One Good Scare Productions that was sort of ramping up as I was closing out my wrestling career. And uh, we have now released two short films. And one of those even got into a local film festival and got some acclaim. So, you know, not necessarily setting the world on fire, but for a guy who completely taught himself how to do it just from learning how to produce wrestling television, I'm pretty happy with my progress so far. And then as also part of that production company, we do a weekly horror podcast called Seeking Human Victims. And... I put the same sort of research and background study that I used to do as far as preparing to do wrestling commentary into learning about the stories behind your favorite and not so favorite horror films. And so I really break down how the movie came together, the stars that are involved and what other things they've been in. Uh, we look at how it did financially, the cultural impact, and of course, just how we felt personally about the films. And I have a round table of guests and friends and family that join me on that show each and every week. So what we've got coming up right now, uh, December 14th will be our next episode uh, that will be an episode on Silent Night, Deadly Night, our third annual Christmas special. And then we start our ninth season in January as we look at the Clive Barker Terror Timeline, a history of the adaptations of Clive Barker. Oh, very cool. I don't know when I'm going to release this. Maybe not in time for the 14th. But, of course, it's the it's a podcast. So if we release this in January, you can go listen to Silent Night, Deadly Night. If we release it later than that, you can go listen to Clive Barker. That sounds really cool. And that's available just the way you would get podcasts, right, on iTunes. And you have a website for that? That's correct. Yes, we do have a website. Uh, it is ogscareproductions.com. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash ogscare. We're on Twitter and uh, as well as Facebook and YouTube at ogscare as well. And uh, yeah, we are on all various podcast providers, iTunes, Spotify, you name it. And uh, as far as uh, I've got a write-up of this match in the book, The Way of Way of the Blade, which is available on Amazon. So everybody who listens to this should go out and get the book. There is some absolutely amazing art in that uh, for this match. It's got some just incredible art along with me rambling on about wrestling. And I think obviously if you're listening to this podcast, hopefully you've already bought the book. But if not, hopefully this podcast would be the one that gets you off the fence and, and throws it in order. Uh, uh, Reverend, it was a pleasure to be in your church for uh, an hour talking about uh, pro wrestling, and I really appreciate this. And like I said, I'm gonna, uh, we're gonna, we are already have scheduled a, a recording uh, for the War Games match the next year, so to be continued. And uh, thanks a lot, everybody, for listening. <laughs>